0: worship is not about externals. It's not about where you are and what you're doing. It must rise from the heart. It must be a decision of the heart to exalt God.
1: Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hi, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom is continuing his series titled, The Heart of Worship. Have you ever been in church, and maybe while singing or reading through Scripture, you've caught yourself thinking about something else? Maybe work, school, how your team is doing, your calendar, who you're meeting for lunch. What about when praying or in Bible study? Might you be thinking about the latest text, meme, or maybe the grocery list? Maybe even the kids' schedule this week. Are those things true of you? Well, on today's program, Tom will remind us that true worship is an outpouring of what exists in the heart as you are worshiping. And true worship is a choice, an intentional decision of your heart to exalt God. So friend, open your Bible now as we join our teacher to learn more on the Word Unleashed.
0: We turn again this morning to the fourth gospel, the gospel of John, and to the fourth chapter, continuing our study of worship. It's been a great journey for me. I trust it has for you. And as we look together at this topic again this morning, I want to begin by sharing with you a quote that I came across this last week from A.W. Tozer, great pastor of the last century, He, he wrote this, Man was made to worship God. God gave to man a harp and said, Here, above all the creatures that I have made and created, I have given you the largest harp. I have put more strings on your instrument, and I have given you a wider range than I have given to any other creature. You can worship me in a manner that no other creature can. When he sinned, Tozer writes, man took that instrument and threw it down in the mud and there it is lain for centuries, rusted, broken, unstrung. And man, instead of playing a harp like the angels and seeking to worship God in all of his activities, is ego-centered and turns in on himself and sulks and swears and laughs and sings, but it's all without joy and it's all without worship he goes on to say that the same thing is true in the church he says worship is the missing jewel in modern evangelicalism we're organized we work we have our agendas we have almost everything but there's one thing that the churches even the gospel churches do not have that's the ability to worship we are not cultivating the art of worship It's the one shining gem that is lost to the modern church, and I believe that we ought to search for this until we find it. You know, A.W. Tozer was exactly right. The church today is all about me and what I can get. We've lost the vision of the grandeur and greatness of God, of the reality that when we gather together, the focus of our time is not about us but rather, it's about God. It's about worship. Nothing, Scripture tells us, has a higher priority to us than this. In fact, you remember, this was the one thing that David desired. In Psalm 27, he writes this, Psalm 27, verse 4, One thing have I asked from the Lord, that I shall seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. David said, here's the thing that I seek more than I seek anything else. Here's the thing that I've asked God to allow me to do more than anything else. It is to worship, to reflect on, to praise the beauty of our God. But if David isn't a high enough authority for you, then what about Jesus Christ? Turn to the New Testament for a moment, turn to Luke chapter 10, keep your finger there and John will be there in just a moment, but in Luke chapter 10, you're familiar with this encounter, beginning in verse 38, we read that they were traveling along, Jesus entered a village, the village of Bethany, which was on the east side of the Mount of Olives, just a couple of miles from the city of Jerusalem. And he entered a village there named Bethany, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. This, of course, was the home that became so common to our Lord. She had a sister called Mary, and they had a brother named Lazarus, whom in John 11 Jesus raises from the dead. But Mary was seated at the Lord's feet, listening to his word. But Martha was distracted with all her preparations, and she came up to Jesus and said, "'Lord, Don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Then tell her to help me. Now, it's interesting in this encounter that we read here, this brief story that Luke records for us, Jesus chides Martha, but he praises Mary. The question is, what's the difference between these two women? Well, look at verse 41. But the Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, You are worried and bothered about so many things, but only one thing is necessary, and Mary has chosen that, and it will not be taken away from her. Our Lord says serving is important. We're commanded to serve, but before service even comes worship, and God here in the person of Jesus Christ shows us the priority that worship has. As one of my seminary professors used to say, there is no effective service until there is acceptable worship. That's exactly what Jesus was saying to Martha. The priority begins not with service, but with worship. Now let me ask you this morning, as we're studying this great topic, is that how you see worship? Does it have that importance to you? Can you say with David that it is the most important thing that you seek, and the most important thing that you have asked from God is the ability to be a true worshiper? Do you really, in your heart of hearts, agree with Christ's assessment to Martha that it is the one thing that is necessary, that it is the good thing that should be chosen? Over the last several weeks, we've been looking at this whole issue of worship, and specifically at our Lord's teaching in John chapter 4. Now in those verses, Jesus teaches us how to worship God. He opens up for us the heart of worship. As we have discovered, Jesus here identifies several inviolable laws of true worship. You want to worship God, Jesus said, here is how it always must happen. Let me remind you of the Two laws we've discovered so far in this passage in verses 20 to 21 we learned this law true worship is not external but must rise from the heart true worship is not about where you are the fact that you came this morning does not constitute worship The fact that you are following along in your Bible as I read does not constitute worship. The fact that you allowed the words of the songs we sang to pass through your mind and through your mouth is not necessarily worship. Worship is not about externals, it's not about where you are and what you're doing. It must rise from the heart, it must be a decision of the heart to exalt God. It's not external. must rise from the heart the second law that we learn together is found in verse 22 and that is true worship is not merely emotional but must result from knowledge jesus says to this woman you don't even know who you're worshiping can't be worshiped without really knowing who it is that you're worshiping they had certainly a rough sketch of who god was They understood who he was from the Pentateuch that they accepted, but because they didn't accept the rest of the Scripture, they had only that rough sketch of God. They didn't have the full picture of who he was, and so Jesus says, it's as if you don't even know him. You can't worship without knowing the object you're worshiping. Emotions are definitely involved, but that's not true worship. Simply engaging the emotions, there must, along with that emotion from which the emotion flows, be knowledge Now today, I want us to discover a third inviolable principle or law of worship in this passage. We find it in verse 23. Look at verse 23. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. Now in the Greek text, verse 23 begins with a strong adversative. Stronger than our English word, but. We could translate it like this, but rather, but on the other hand, Jesus intended here to make a strong contrast with what he said about the worship of the Samaritans. He says, in contrast to the worship that's all caught up in externals, like the place you worship, verses 20 and 21, and in contrast to worship that is carried out in ignorance, verse 22, An hour is coming and now is. Jesus is saying, with my arrival, I'm ushering in a significant change in the reality of worship. The hour is coming and now is. In the Gospel of John, that's Jesus' signature phrase for something new came with me. Worship is no longer, Jesus says, with my arrival going to be about a particular place, that is the temple in Jerusalem. And it's no longer going to be without the knowledge of God. Rather, verse 23, true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Now, Jesus had already touched on these themes in the previous verses, and, of course, we have as well. But in verses 23 and 24, Jesus fills out our understanding of these things. He takes us deeper and farther than we have yet gone. He opens up to us new and fresh insights that we need to see together. Now look at that phrase again in verse 23. There are several initial observations that we need to make from the words, true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Just a couple of initial observations. First of all, notice that by saying that there are true worshipers, Jesus is making the point that there are false worshipers, and not merely false worshipers, those who worship another God, but there are false worshipers among those who claim to worship the true God. Remember, he's talking to this Samaritan woman who worshiped the God of Israel, but she worshiped him without knowing who he really was, and in a place that he had not designated. So she was not a true worshipper. There are false worshipers even of the true God. The Samaritans are an example. Jesus himself, you remember in Matthew 7 at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, makes the point that at the end of time when the judgment occurs, there will be those who stand before him as judge and say, "Wait a minute, Lord, Lord, remember us. Remember what we did in your name?" And Jesus will say, I never knew you. So there are false worshipers, even of the true God. Also notice that Jesus uses the label true worshipers to define who a true believer is. To be a believer is to be a worshiper. To be a Christian is to be a worshiper. True worshipers will worship. Every genuine Christian will worship the true God. It's both natural and it's necessary to the spiritual life. It's as involuntary as the beating of your heart. You don't have to think about making your heart beat. You don't have to think as a Christian about worship. It happens. We can improve and strengthen our worship. That's why we're doing this series together. But true Christians will always genuinely worship. To be a Christian is to be a true worshiper. And to be a true worshiper is to be a Christian. Now, with those initial observations made, let's look at the heart of verse 23. Jesus says, in this new era that my coming, my arrival on earth, has ushered in, let me tell you how you can recognize a true worshiper. True worshipers, he says, will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Key, obviously, is in that little prepositional phrase at the end, in spirit and truth. It's really amazing, isn't it, our Lord's teaching? Because, unlike me, in an economy of words, our Lord here teaches us volumes about true worship. He unlocks for us the heart of worship. Notice that both of those nouns, spirit and truth, are objects of a single preposition, one in. Same thing is true in Greek as in English. Jesus has a lesson here for us. These things come as a package. It's a package deal. You can't get them separately. Jesus wanted us to understand that these two qualities of true worship always belong together. In practice, they cannot be separated true worship cannot be genuinely in spirit without also being in truth and it cannot be genuinely in truth without also being in spirit we need to keep that in mind as we study these elements together however while in practice they cannot be separated they come as a package these two words do describe for us two different facets Of how we are to worship in fact it's really remarkable because in these two nouns Jesus captures the basic ingredients of true worship to have true worship there must be truth and there must be spirit that is there must be God's self-revelation truth and there must be our response in spirit. In truth deals with our understanding of God's self-revelation. In spirit deals with our response to that revelation. So in these two far-reaching nouns, Jesus lays out for us two more laws of worship. True worship is not intuitive, but must be directed by God's truth true worship is not intuitive but must be directed by God's truth you see you and I tend to think that worship is something that we can generate something we can initiate something that we know how to do intuitively and there's of course a sense in which that's true as we've already discovered we were made to worship you were made by God to worship and we do worship We worship something or someone. If it's not the true God, it'll be ourselves or something God has made, money or position or power or sex or whatever it is. We'll worship something if it's not God. So there's a sense in which we know how to worship. But there's another sense in which we don't know how to worship the true God because we are fallen, because even as believers, we still have the flesh. Our view of worship is skewed our perspective of how to worship God is skewed. And if we're going to truly worship God, we've got to understand that it's not intuitive. It's not something you just know how to do. Instead, it must be directed by God's truth. It must be in truth. It must be in keeping with the truth. Now, when we say it must be in truth, we're really saying two things. We're saying specifically it must be according to the truth about worship and it must be according to the truth about God. The truth about how we worship and the truth about whom we worship. If we're going to worship in truth, that's what we're really saying. We're saying that we are going to come to grasp what worship really is because you can't worship in truth if you don't even know what worship is. And we're saying we come to grasp who God is, who the object of our worship is, and therefore we worship in truth. So both of those elements are involved in worshiping God in a way that's directed by his truth. It's understanding what worship is like and understanding who God is and what he's like. So I want us to begin our study of this third great law that truth must excuse me, that worship must be directed by God's truth, by looking at the fact that we must understand to worship in truth, we must understand the truth about worship itself. 10 times. in these seven verses in John four, various forms of the' words, word for worship is used. It's used twice by the woman. It's used eight times by our Lord to worship the question is what does it mean you cannot worship God in truth if you don't even understand what worship is worship of course takes many different forms in our world if you were to go out and ask the average man on the street what is worship or for that matter if I were to ask you what is worship we'd get a variety of answers here this morning people do some interesting and even bizarre things under the guise of worship but if we're going to worship God in truth, it demands that we understand worship from God's perspective, that we worship in the way he defines worship. Our English word worship comes from an old Anglo-Saxon word, worthsipe. It means to recognize the worth of someone else, to recognize the worth, to recognize the worthiness, dignity, or merit of a person, and to pay them respect or homage that they deserve. Not a bad rudimentary definition of worship, actually, but let me give you my own preliminary definition. And I say preliminary because next week, Lord willing, we're going to fill this out just a little more with a little more understanding. But let me give you kind of a preliminary definition of worship. Worship is seeing and savoring the supreme value and worthiness of God. Let me say that again. Worship is seeing and savoring the supreme value and worthiness of God and responding as he deserves. One more time, let me give that to you. Think about each of those elements. Each of them is very important. Worship is seeing and savoring the supreme value and worthiness of God and responding as he deserves. Ralph Martin writes, Worship is an exercise of the human spirit that is directed to God. It is an enterprise undertaken not simply to satisfy our need or to make us feel better or to minister to our aesthetic taste or social well being, but to express the worthiness of God Himself. Now, today I really want us to grasp one big idea about worship, and that is the heart and soul of worship, the core of worship, the big idea, the key idea behind worship. What is it? It's found in a single word. It's the word response. When we examine the sweep of biblical revelation, we discover that the key idea in worship is that it is a response. It is a response to God and to his self-revelation. You see, at the heart of Christian worship is not me, but God. Martin Luther wrote, to know God is to worship him. Let me say that again. Think about that. To know God is to worship him. True worship flows out of a genuine awareness of the truth about God. True worship is never self-initiated. I don't generate worship. I can't just decide I'm going to worship in a vacuum. Worship is always a response to God. This is the heart of worship. You see, whenever people in Scripture encounter the true God, what always happens? Always, without exception. They worship. Every time someone truly encounters the true God in His glory, He knows it, and He responds in worship. Now, I want to prove this to you because this is a huge concept, and I'll show you why in just a few minutes, but let me take you just through a few passages to give you a sense of this is what the Scriptures teach. Let's start back in the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 4. Nowhere does God more reveal himself in the Old Testament than in the exodus, that is in his redemption of his people from the land of Egypt. Over and over again the Old Testament prophets bring God's people back to this point in time and speak of the fact that here God is revealed as really in no other time in Israel's history.
1: That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part 7 of his series The Heart of Worship Tom will have Part 8 for you on our next program. Join us then, won't you? Well, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at org. Again, that's listeners at the word or you can call us at one eight seven seven five seven seven word And remember to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. You know, The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do that by visiting thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's thewordunleashed.org.